Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, including history. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free audiobook. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast and get a free audiobook, so why wouldn't you? Support your favorite podcast and get a book of your choice. What's not to love? And I'm going to offer recommendations. I love Audible. I've been using it for years. I have tons of recommendations. To go with my subject matter today, I'm recommending Ronald H. Spector's Eagle Against the Sun, The American War with Japan, an excellent one-volume history of the Pacific War. It's a great listen narrated by a great speaker, and I highly recommend it. And it's free. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. Got it? On with the show. The year, 1942. The place, New Guinea. The Japanese army marches through Papua New Guinea, and only some ragtag Australian militia stand in their way. The Kokoda Track Campaign is the stuff that legends are made of. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Season 2 of Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 35, The Legend of Kokoda. Today, we are taking one of our rare trips to World War II in this podcast. Like I've said before, I try not to hit on World War II too much. There's so many other bits of history to touch on, but sometimes I have a story that needs to be told, and this is one of them. This is the story of the Kokoda Track Campaign, the battle between Australian and Japanese troops in the jungles and mountains of New Guinea, a conflict that might just be the Australian national epic. And guys, I am so excited to talk about this one. For the record, if you're ever sharing this podcast with like friends or acquaintances or maybe your weird cousin who's way, way too into war games and strategy games and stuff, probably someone like me, uh, I think this is a good starter episode. My personal opinion. It's not too obscure. There's not too many callbacks to other episodes. I think it's pretty good. Just a heads up there. Keep passing the tapes. All right, enough plugging. Let's get into it. Just in from the war front, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. There's some relatively brutal violence for this in this story, even in this podcast, worse than usual. So please be forewarned. Podcast remains PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources, some images, some maps, some commentary will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. World War II holds an unusual place in history. It didn't just change the world, change every country that fought in it. It wasn't just the most destructive and largest conflict in human history. It was also the birth of so many legends, myths, stories that countries and nations and people would tell themselves over and over. It's the source of so much identity for so many countries. The British have Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain and Winston Churchill, their finest hour. The Americans have D-Day and Iwo Jima, the greatest generation. 
The Russians have Stalingrad and Berlin, their great patriotic war. These are famous stories that became part of a collective national ideal, a memory of the war and what it proved or represented about the country, a national mythos. We tell stories to tell us something about who we are. Those stories collect and become this mythos, this national legend. But the small countries, the ones that always get forgotten, they have their stories. They have their mythos. Stories that get lost in the shadow of D-Day and Stalingrad and Dunkirk. For instance, the Australians have Kokoda. The Kokoda track campaign of 1942 is one of World War II's many forgotten campaigns, and it's virtually unknown outside Australia. It was fought between them and the Japanese in the jungles and mountains of New Guinea, and featured conditions so extreme and combat so fierce, there are times when it honestly shocks me. And for the Australians, this is their equivalent to D-Day or Stalingrad or Dunkirk. Kokoda is their great epic of World War II. The story they can continue to tell themselves over and over to the present day, that they believe tells them something important about who they are, what their values are, about Australia's place in the world. And like any important story, any of the stories I mentioned above, fact and fiction often blur together. The men of D-Day and Dunkirk and Stalingrad are transformed into supermen, facing enormous odds, fighting a seemingly unstoppable enemy. And for Kokoda, like all those other stories, parts of that narrative are true, but other parts get exaggerated, or downplayed, or forgotten, or even invented. The more important history is to people, the more likely it will transform into legend. But Kokoda wasn't just an Australian story, even though it's an Australian legend. It was also a Japanese story. In narratives of the Pacific theater of World War II, the Japanese are often transformed formed into faceless monsters, somehow both superhuman and subhuman. This reflects both the horrifying combat in the Pacific, the racial context of the conflict, and some pretty very real Japanese war crimes. But the Japanese also fought on the Kokoda track, and they had their own records of what went down. They had a story too. When these stories come into conflict, when these two different perspectives meld together, Maybe then we can start to understand the truth. Maybe then we can find the reality behind the legend of Kokoda. Today, we will talk about the Kokoda Track Campaign, July to November 1942. We will explain why and how World War II came to Australia and New Guinea. And then we're going to have a quick geography lesson because this would be a war fault at what seems like the end of the world. We'll meet the Australian and Japanese armies and see how they fought a desperate, savage campaign in some of the worst terrain where modern armies have ever fought. We will see the Kokoda Track both on the ground level and at the strategic level to figure out why it went the way it did. We'll see the final battle in Papua New Guinea when the Americans get involved at the final bloodbaths at Buna and Gona. And along the way, we will examine the legend of Kokoda and see where it measures up to reality and where it doesn't. And this is a long hike up the Owen Stanley's, mates, so you are going to need some breaks. These are your chance to pause, throw a football, take your kids to dance class, do the thing you need to do. So change your socks, tighten your pack, and grab your Bryn gun. You've got a long way to go today, into the mountains, jungles, and monsoon-soaked hell of New Guinea. Let's go on campaign.
Australia was still a very young country. Lots of older folks remembered when there was no Australia per se, just a collection of British colonies only formally united in 1907. But they also remembered that when the British Empire entered World War I, Australia answered the call. They and the New Zealanders formed the units that came to be called ANZACs for Australia and New Zealand Army Corps. The ANZACs of the Australian Imperial Force, or AIF, proved their courage a dozen times over at places like Gallipoli, the Somme, and Passchendaele. Australia lost over 60,000 dead in combat during the First World War, more than the United States. In a lot of ways, World War I helped create the idea of Australia as a nation, something more than just a collection of colonies. They had shared a collective sacrifice and trauma that helped shape their identity. The diggers of the original AIF, that was the slang for an Australian soldier, the digger, seemed like superheroes, those hard men who had faced down the German and the Turk. It was the beginning of an Anzac legend, the myth of the superior camaraderie, lethality, and willpower of the Australian and New Zealander soldier. But World War I was followed by disillusionment. There was a feeling that Australian blood had been shed just to benefit the British Empire, like a betrayal of their sacrifice. This cynical mood grew in the 1930s with the Great Depression. Economic pressures led to social change, labor violence, and political strife. The big question on everybody's mind was Australia's place in the world. Was it just an outpost of England, an imperial possession, just a little growth off the British Empire? Or was it its own nation, separate from the mother country? In 1931, the British Parliament passed the Statute of Westminster, which granted all the former dominions, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, autonomy. They were now legally independent if they wanted to be. But Australia didn't ratify the statute. The governing Liberal Party, despite its name the more conservative of Australia's political parties, had no interest in breaking ties. Australia was still bound to Britain in their minds. Prime Minister Robert Menzies and his Liberal Party were still in power in 1939 when Germany invaded Poland and World War II began. Compared to the patriotic enthusiasm of World War I, many Australians were much more reluctant about World War II. It didn't seem like it had that much to do with them, like it wasn't really their war. But Menzies insisted that if Britain went to war, Australia automatically went to war, and he got grudging acceptance of this, because the Australians were still bound to Britain. Once again, Australia raised an army to fight Britain's war. This would be the second Australian Imperial Force, the second AIF. It was harder to find recruits for the second AIF than the first. Too many memories of Gallipoli and the Somme. Too much feeling that Australian blood was being shed for British interests. But eventually the 6th, 7th, and 9th divisions of the AIF sailed off to fight against the Axis in the Mediterranean and North Africa. The 8th division went to garrison Singapore. There was some question as to whether this new generation of kids would fight, would live up to the Anzac legend, the skepticism every older generation has for a younger generation. But the second AIF did fight, most famously in their defense of Tobruk against Rommel's Panzers in 1941, a new chapter of the Anzac legend. But there was an unintended consequence of Australia's support for Britain's war effort. To the United States, it was December 7th, a date which would live in infamy, Pearl Harbor. 
But the 7 million people of Australia woke up on the other side of the international dateline on December 8th, 1941. The Pacific was at war, Australia was on the Japanese hit list, and their army was on the other side of the world. And guys, Japan's initial offensive in World War II, the initial set of attacks they launched after Pearl Harbor, including Pearl Harbor, was capital S shocking. I'm not sure if you will grasp how crazy this was. Britain and America had these defensive plans that just got blown out of the water, sometimes literally. The Japanese Navy, especially its aircraft carrier strike force, the Kido Butai, sank most of the U.S. Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor and then rampaged across the Pacific, almost unstoppable. The Japanese Army proved smarter, tougher, and deadlier than anyone imagined, especially when they took the supposedly impregnable British fortress of Singapore in 1942. The entire 8th Australian Division marched into Japanese prison camps where a third of them would perish. The first six months of World War II in the Pacific were a nearly unbroken string of Japanese victories. So for Australia, the Japanese threat was getting very close, very fast. On January 23, 1942, six weeks after Pearl Harbor, a Japanese fleet sailed towards Rabaul on the island of New Britain, northeast of New Guinea. Rabaul was one of the only suitable naval and air bases in the Southwest Pacific area. Soon a 15,000-man land force, the South Seas Detachment, led by Major General Tomitaro Hori, splashed onto the beaches of Rabaul. Rabaul was defended by a small force, the 222nd Infantry Battalion of the AIF, and a handful of militia units, only around 1,400 men, all commanded by Australian Lieutenant Colonel John Scanlon. Their equipment was old, their training was poor, and they were heavily outnumbered. The only fighter aircraft they had were literally trainers, 10 Australian-built Weiraways, never intended for frontline use. The Australians never stood a chance. For the cost of only 16 dead, the South Seas Detachment seized Rabaul and scattered the defenders into the hills. And any Australian that fell into their hands faced a very real chance of straight-up execution. One Australian journalist reported what happened to some survivors of a field ambulance unit. A Japanese officer used his sword to cut the first man in the line loose, and he gestured to him to get up and go with the Japanese soldier into the trees. A moment later, the others froze as a blood-curdling cry of agony came from the man, and shortly afterwards, the soldier came back alone, wiping blood from his bayonet with a piece of rag. One by one, the other prisoners were taken away, each by a different soldier, and butchered. The Japanese were not in the habit of taking prisoners in World War II. They did sometimes, those thousands of POWs didn't come from nowhere, but a lot of times they just didn't, mostly because of a military culture that dehumanized its opponents and believed surrender was cowardly. Japanese military behavior and atrocities throughout the Second World War are well known, but less well known are allied responses to those atrocities. The cycle of who hit who first stops mattering about the time that American soldiers start sending Japanese skulls home to their girlfriends, which is a thing that happened. It was on the cover of Life magazine. 4,000 Australians managed to escape Rabaul, and they brought home alarming stories of the Japanese attack. But the capture of Rabaul also gave the Japanese a base on what had been Australian outlying territory. And if that made Australians scared, that was nothing compared to what came a month later. 
On February 19, 1942, 242 Japanese aircraft appeared above Darwin on Australia. They were the planes of the Kido Butai, the Japanese aircraft carriers that had hit Pearl Harbor. The Japanese flyers hit Darwin like a bolt from the blue, complete surprise, sinking 11 ships and killing 236 people. This was small casualty list for World War II standards, but this was Australian territory. The war wasn't far away in Europe, Africa, or the Middle East anymore. The war was here, here on their doorstep, like, holy crap, we are in danger. Overnight, Australia's World War II experience turned from a distant overseas conflict into a fight for national survival. And the task of leading Australia in this fight for national survival fell to the new Prime Minister, John Curtin of the Labour Party. Curtin was a well-known fighter for workers' rights, including some time as part of the Australian Socialist Party, earning him a reputation as a left-wing radical. Nowadays, probably closer to like a social democrat, like a Bernie Sanders type. Winston Churchill, who checked under his bed for communists every night, never trusted John Curtin, at least partially because Curtin had opposed Australia's participation in World War I. And this pinko commie was the new prime minister? But John Curtin is, by my reckoning, one of World War II's great unsung leaders. When Japan launched its attacks on Pearl Harbor and elsewhere, initiating the Pacific War, Curtin rallied his nation in a radio address. Men and women of Australia, we are at war with Japan. This is the gravest hour of our history. There is a place and part for all of us. Each must take his or her place in the service of the nation, for the nation itself is in peril. This is our darkest hour. Let that be fully realized. Our efforts in the past two years must be as nothing compared with the efforts we must now put forward. And even before the bombing of Darwin brought the shock of war home to Australia, Curtin had decided that the army needed to come home. Curtin sent a cable to Winston Churchill asking that the AIF be sent back from the Middle East to protect their homeland from the Japanese. But Churchill resisted, believing that these units were necessary to stop the Axis to fight Rommel in North Africa. I mean, fair, but it's hard to blame Curtin for being like, no, this is our army. We've fought Britain's wars long enough. We are not just your colony. Australia is in danger. Our Anzacs have to come home. The stubborn Winston Churchill had met his match in John Curtin. Soon, the 6th and 7th Australian divisions were headed back to the homeland. Curtin's fight with Churchill wasn't just a strategic move, but a symbolic move. It was now crystal clear that when push came to shove, Britain would choose its own interests over that of Australia so Australia would have to do the same. John Curtin made this clear in a speech on December 27th, 1941. Without any inhibitions of any kind, I make it clear that Australia looks to America, free of any pangs as to our traditional links or kinship with the United Kingdom. We shall exert all our energies toward the shaping of a plan, with the United States as its keystone, which will give to our country some confidence of being able to hold out until the tide of battle swings against the enemy. So yeah, what Curtin is saying is relationship with Britain ended. America is my new best friend. Churchill was furious, but Australia's course was set. From now on, they would look towards the United States rather than Great Britain as their main global ally and partner up until the present day. 
In this moment of national crisis, only the United States was close enough and strong enough to help protect Australia from the imminent Japanese threat. The reason I'm giving you all this background is to establish something very important for our story. Australia was a country, a society, a people in the middle of the greatest crisis in their history, in a battle against a threat to the homeland, and a struggle to define their identity, who they were as a nation. This was a country in desperate need of a mythos, of a legend. John Curtin's new American alliance began to pay off. For one thing, he asked for an American general to help lead the defense of Australia, and he wanted the most famous American general of all. At Australian behest, General Douglas MacArthur was evacuated from the besieged Philippines and smuggled to Australia. He assumed command of Allied forces in the Southwest Pacific area, including the Australian Army. And American troops began to arrive, first logistics and supply troops, and eventually the 32nd and 41st Infantry Divisions, both National Guard units. And not a moment too soon, because the Japanese were on the move. Now let's switch perspective and look at this from the Japanese point of view. Because if Australia was thinking about Japan, Japan was also thinking about Australia. Most Japanese strategists saw Australia as a threat, a springboard for future Allied counterattacks. The Japanese belief was that any future Allied offensive against their newly won empire would have to originate in Australia, where the Americans had already sent troops, where their most famous General MacArthur was stationed, the largest Allied nation close to the Japanese perimeter. So new Japanese goal neutralize and isolate Australia. And this meant dealing with the final obstacle, the final thing between them and Australia itself. This was New Guinea. New Guinea is the world's second largest island, over 303,000 square miles, literally bigger than Texas. In 1942, New Guinea was divided in half politically, with the western half belonging to the Dutch East Indies, future Indonesia, and the eastern half a colonial territory governed by Australia. People have described New Guinea as looking like one of its native birds of paradise, with the head to the west looking like a beak, and the tail to the east. And this tail, the territory called Papua New Guinea, was where the Kokoda Track campaign would take place. And for both sides in this episode, neither one of them is actually the real villain. Geography is the real villain. Most of the island is covered in rainforests, wetlands, savanna, or mangrove forests, but also mountains, which are huge mountains, and they can become downright alpine and freezing at their highest points. This adds up to extremely difficult, nearly impenetrable terrain, especially for a modern army with trucks and artillery and tanks. The weather is capital T tropical, with monsoons and flash floods and stinking heat. The people of New Guinea speak literally over a thousand languages, and anthropologists estimate that over 40 uncontacted tribes are still living in the deep, unexplored areas in the modern day. New Guinea is also home to as many as 10% of all the world's animal and plant species. Colorful birds, flowers, fish, foot-wide butterflies, and tree kangaroos, but also some no-joke dangerous will-kill-you animals like the cassowary, saltwater crocodile, and a hundred different species of snake. Guys, this is freaking Jumanji, but more dangerous. Welcome to the jungle to beat all jungles. There are no fun in games. So why would anyone want to fight a war here? This sounds like the worst place to ever fight a modern war. Oh, it was. 
But by mid-1942, New Guinea had become critical real estate, and this was because of airfields. The Pacific War was largely an air war, where airbases on tiny islands scattered from China to Hawaii were the keys to victory. And on an island as dense and difficult as New Guinea, there were only a few spots where airfields could be built, but once those airfields were built, they could dominate the ocean for hundreds of miles around them. And in 1942, the main airbase in New Guinea was at Port Moresby, on the southern coast of Papua New Guinea, close to the Australian mainland. Port Moresby was and is the largest town in Papua, and it was the principal Allied base in New Guinea in mid-1942, like the Australians occupy this base, they've occupied it for decades. The Australian Air Force and U.S. Army Air Force were already using Port Moresby's airfields to launch airstrikes on Japanese-controlled Rabaul. Pearl Harbor had demonstrated the effect that air attacks can have on naval power, and Allied air raids were a threat to both the facilities and Jap Japan's seaborne supply routes. The Japanese were already feeling the logistic pinch from these raids. To keep their supply lines and bases safe from Allied air attack, to secure the Southwest Pacific Empire they had just built, the Japanese would have to secure Port Moresby. The Japanese Army Chief of Staff, General Hajime Sugiyama, said, We must hold the fronts in eastern New Guinea and Rabaul to the end. If they fall, not only will the Pacific Ocean be in peril, but it will allow the western advance of MacArthur's counterattack through New Guinea and herald the fall of our dominion in the southern area. Japanese Army Chief of Staff said it. To win the war, the Japanese had to hold Rabaul and New Guinea to preserve their new empire. And to hold Rabaul and New Guinea, they had to capture Port Moresby. But for the Australians, holding Port Moresby was a no-fail task. It was the last line of defense between the Japanese and Australia. With aircraft based at Port Moresby, the Japanese would be able to strike Northern Australia wherever they wanted, a permanent dagger to the Allied throat. This was how a small coastal town in New Guinea someplace totally insignificant to the world's economy or culture or religion or any of it, would become the focal point of six months of fighting. Both sides needed that airbase. The Kokoda Track campaign would ultimately be the fight for Port Moresby. But at first, the Japanese tried to take Port Moresby the same way they'd taken every other objective in the Pacific War, by sea. In April 1942, the Army and Navy planned a joint operation. Operation Mole. Two aircraft carriers and numerous supporting ships would escort the Army's South Seas detachment around the eastern tip of New Guinea and land at and capture Port Moresby, removing the last Japanese obstacle on the road to neutralizing Australia. But the United States Navy intervened. American Signals Intelligence picked up on the plan, so when the Japanese left Rabaul on May 4, 1942, the U.S. Navy sent its own aircraft carriers to intercept them. The result was the Battle of the Coral Sea, famous as the first naval battle in which neither side's surface ships ever came within sight of the other. The entire battle was fought by planes launched from aircraft carriers against the enemy fleets. The outcome of the Coral Sea was technically a draw, but was ultimately an Allied victory. Even though the American carrier USS Lexington was sunk, the Japanese were forced to turn back and never reach their objective. Port Moresby was safe. For now. And in June 1942, something happened that nixed the possibility of the Japanese ever taking Port Moresby by sea. From June 3rd through 4th, 1942, at Midway, 
the United States Navy and the Japanese Combined Fleet fought one of history's most decisive battles. In the space of a few minutes, Japan went from winning World War II to losing World War II. Four Japanese aircraft carriers were sunk in the Kido Butai, Terror of the Pacific. The strike force that had hit Pearl Harbor was nearly annihilated. Midway is one of the big, important historical battles, but that's not our story today. You can almost hear me going off the rails there like, ooh, Midway, I want to talk about Midway, but no. But Midway hamstrung the Japanese Navy so badly that it brought a sudden, decisive end to the Japanese winning streak in any major offensives. From now on, Japanese strategy would be mainly defensive, to defend the Empire's long perimeter from the Allied counterattack. The Battle of the Coral Sea is usually seen as the prologue to the Battle of Midway, but it was also the prologue to the Kokoda Track campaign. Because the Japanese still needed to take Port Moresby, even if they could no longer do it by sea. So they would have to do it by land. And luckily for them, their pre-war intelligence had revealed a path. A narrow trail running from the north side of Papua, near the villages of Buna and Gona on the northern coast, across New Guinea to Port Moresby. And the most difficult part of this trail was a 60-mile mountain track that crossed the Owen Stanley Mountains, a track that began in the small village of Kokoda. So this would be the Japanese plan. Land in Papua New Guinea at the towns of Buna and Gona. March overland across the Kokoda track through the last place on earth you should ever try to fight a war and take Port Moresby. Now, a key component of the Kokoda legend that we talked about at the beginning is that the Japanese planned to invade Australia and that Australian resistance in the Kokoda campaign saved Australia, like this was the battle to save Australia. But the Japanese never planned to invade Australia. The army didn't have the spare troops to invade and occupy a country that big, not when they were still fighting the land war in China. Army Chief of Staff Sugiyama said, Even if we take only part of Australia, it could lead to a war of attrition and escalate into total war. During one conference between the army and the navy, Colonel Takushiro Hattori was arguing with several naval officers that, like, look, we can't invade Australia. I know you guys think you can on your ships, but are you kidding me? He grabbed a cup. The tea in this cup represents our total strength. Then he spilled the tea on the ground. You see, it goes just so far. So the Japanese did not plan to invade Australia. And even if they wanted to, they probably couldn't have, not after Midway. The Japanese reasons for attacking Port Moresby were now essentially defensive, to remove the aerial threat to their main base at Rabaul and prevent MacArthur's forces in Australia from using the base at Port Moresby to launch a counterattack against Rabaul. They probably never planned to go farther than Port Moresby. The Japanese plan was to take and hold it as their outer line of defense. But don't tell the Australians that. To them, always, the upcoming fight on the Kokoda Track would be the battle that saved Australia. Because the only thing that stood in the way of the Japanese assault at New Guinea was a scattered force of Australian and Papuan militia. They were about to wage a campaign in some of the most wretched conditions and extreme terrain human beings have ever fought wars, under the stresses of starvation, disease, dehydration, exhaustion, and terrible combat. It was prime material for an epic, a mythos. The stuff that legends are made of.
Welcome to July 1942. All over the globe, World War II is raging. The United States is still gearing up for war, very few troops involved yet. The British are fighting Rommel's Africa Corps in the deserts of North Africa. The Allies are fighting the Battle of the Atlantic against the German U-boat menace. The Germans have launched a major offensive toward the city of Stalingrad in Russia. And in the Pacific, the United States is preparing its first counterattack against the Japanese on an island called Guadalcanal. So yeah guys, a bunch of stuff is going on. And in New Guinea, the last place anyone should ever fight a modern war, the Kokoda Track Campaign is about to begin. On July 21st, 1942, Japanese ships appeared off the northern coast of Papua New Guinea. Japanese infantry raced onto the beaches, secured the small towns of Buna and Gona, and scattered the few militia units posted in the area. Soon Japanese engineers started building the base camp and airstrips, as a reinforced battalion of infantry prepared to march inland. Their target was Port Moresby. They were the advance guard of the Nankai Shitai, the South Seas Detachment. The South Seas Detachment consisted of the 44th and 144th Infantry Regiments, along with supporting artillery and engineer units. It was commanded by Major General Tomitaro Horii, a fierce but eccentric combat commander who always rode a white horse. Horii had trained his men well. For the last few months at Rabaul, he had made them climb mountains with heavy packs in preparation for campaigning the New Guinea. The Nankai Shitai was a disciplined, experienced task force full of combat veterans, armed with light mortars and mountain artillery and machine guns, and the quality of its individual soldiers and officers was outstanding. In 1942, the Japanese probably had the all-around best light infantry in the world, fast, mobile, and aggressive, with excellent skills in camouflage and jungle fighting. They trained for jungle fighting and night fighting. And they also had excellent morale. They were some of the most well-disciplined soldiers in the, in the whole war. But that would not stop the Imperial Japanese Army from being unusually brutal in a war that was already very brutal. The Japanese were not monsters, not subhuman the way their opponents portrayed them. But Japan's militarist government and radical ideology had given the military an unusual disregard for human life. Unusual even in the 20th century. As soon as they landed in Papua, the Japanese inflicted terror on both native Papuans and Australian citizens. Japanese soldiers hunted down two Anglican missionaries, Sister Mavis and Sister May, who prayed over open graves as they were bayoneted to death. The Japanese took villagers to Buna Beach and made the locals watch as they beheaded them, one by one, including a father in front of his six-year-old child. Then they killed the kid, too. Word spread fast and the Papuans fled in the face of the Japanese. To do anything else was to face torture, rape, and probably death. And when word got back to Australia, it was pretty evident that this is what the home country faced if the Japanese ever made it to their shores. And the road to Australia lay through Port Moresby. For years before World War II, Japanese agents had been scouting out both the New Guinea coast and Port Moresby itself. They had even bought maps of the region in Australian shops. These maps showed a road that appeared to run from Buna and Gona on the northern coast where the Japanese had landed, down to the village of Kokoda in the middle of Papua. But once the road got to Kokoda, it ascended the Owen Stanley Mountains and became the Kokoda Track. 
The Kokoda Track, which ran from Kokoda Village in the north to Port Moresby in the south, was a 60-mile footpath on paper. Many officers on both sides looked at the map and said, oh, cool, a road. But the word road is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. The Kokoda Track was a muddy shoulder-width rut that only one man could use at a time. It ran up and down the Owen Stanley Mountains. At some places, it was nearly vertical. One of these areas was called the Golden Stairs, consisting of several thousand logs jammed into the mud and held in place by pegs, where each step filled up with filth and water full of mosquitoes. Climbing the Golden Stairs required both hands and feet at certain points, like it was one of those rock walls in a fancy gym. The Golden Stairs climbed 1,300 feet up, then 1,600 feet back down, then 2,200 feet back up, and it took 12 hours to get through them all. The track also crossed roaring rivers full of leeches and crocodiles. It ascended mountains that froze in the summer and descended into jungles that steamed in the winter. God help you if it rained, and it rained a lot. And always the jungle, the mosquitoes, the spiders, and the snakes, and the sweat, and the mud. This was the Kokoda Track. You can't get that from looking at a map. Now, the Kokoda Track, if you looked at it, this very obviously could not handle anything larger than a human being, not even really a pack animal. That meant that every ounce of supply going up the track would have to be carried. The iron hand of logistics would play an enormous role in this campaign, since every method of supply was impossible except for the Mark I human body. In a world war so often fought by armies and divisions, the Kokoda Track campaign would be fought by companies and battalions. There was only one place along the Kokoda Track where the Iron Hand could be bypassed, Kokoda itself, because it had a primitive but vital, very recently built, airstrip. Whoever controlled this airstrip could bring in supplies by air. So the Japanese were determined to seize Kokoda immediately, as soon as Colonel Yokoyama Yosuke's advance guard landed at Buna and Gona. He assembled a task force of infantry engineers and light artillery. Within 24 hours, they were mounted up on bicycles and pedaling south along the road to Kokoda. Bicycles, you say? Yeah, you laugh, but in jungle environments unsuitable for motor vehicles or horses, bicycles could be surprisingly effective. In the Singapore campaign in 1941-42, the Japanese had outflanked the British forces in the jungle using bicycles and come up on them from the rear. General Douglas MacArthur had received intelligence reports of Japanese intentions in New Guinea. At first, these were dismissed because the terrain was deemed impossible for military operations. But the Japanese in World War II had a motto, no terrain is impossible for military operations. Some of their greatest victories, like Singapore, had been won by using seemingly impossible terrain. But MacArthur had not been completely idle. In June, he told General Sir Thomas Blamey, commander of the Australian Land Forces, that the Japanese seemed to be looking at the Kokoda Track. Increasing evidence that the Japanese are displaying interest in the development of a route from Buna on the north coast through Kokoda to Port Moresby. It is of vital importance that the route from Kokoda westward be controlled by Allied forces, particularly the Kokoda area. But all the hardcore Allied fighting units, the Australian 6th and 7th Divisions, the US 32nd and 41st Divisions, were tied up in Australia itself in case the Japanese attacked the Australian homeland. They could only spare so many troops for other fronts that this was a pretty rational decision. But what this meant 
was that when the Japanese marched up the Kokoda track, their opponents would be the militia. When Australia raised the AIF in 1939 and 1940, lots of men didn't go. Some didn't volunteer, some were disabled or sick, some were too old or not old enough. These men were enrolled in the Australian militia. The AIF laughed at the militia, calling them chocolate soldiers, because they were supposed to melt away at the first sign of trouble. These were units that were only meant to serve in Australian territory and were not supposed to be in frontline combat. They were the third string, the bench warmers. The 39th Infantry Battalion was one of these units. The majority of its rank and file were under 20. Kids. The ranks were also filled with dudes past normal military age, some older than 50, including one man with only a few teeth left. But they had a handful of good leaders, including World War I veteran Captain Sam Templeton, commanding Company B. Templeton was an inspiring athletic leader beloved by his company, a work-hard, play-hard kind of guy who turned his ragtag unit into a respectable team. But they were still the leftovers, the stay-behinds, the chocolate soldiers. But their number had been called. It was time for the militia to go to war. B Company of the 39th Battalion were the first unit to ascend the Kokoda track in June 1942. The Australian militia, these teenagers and medical rejects and old men who were never supposed to be on the front lines, climbed with their full kit, their khaki uniform, felt hat, Lee Enfield bolt-action rifle, bayonet, water bottle, ammunition pouches, Bren machine guns, heavy pack and extra cargo, all of this, they're carrying all of this, into the muddy, slippery mess that was the Kokoda Track. 60 miles of the worst terrain in the world. Every Australian and Japanese soldier remembered the same experience of marching and fighting up the track. They would climb up one of the golden stairs, get to the top and collapse, panting and sweating and near crying, and look over to see a dozen more identical mountains in their path. Men gasped like they were drowning, groaned like they were dying, as they hauled their sore bodies up one height after another. The Australians soared and plunged over the mountains, sloshing through marshes, clutching the sides of mountains as they edged along a cliff, hacking through vines with machetes, hopping from rock to rock across raging streams. Ankles twisted, feet blistered, knees buckled. Mosquitoes and insects swarmed across them. And these were New Guinea insects, big monsters whose bites felt like gunshots. The gases and mists of the rainforest consumed you. Oh, and you'd better hope that it wasn't raining. The monsoons of the South Pacific were like buckets being poured over your head. One Australian remembered the Kokoda Track. Now the scenery is changing. We are entering a moss forest. We have climbed up into the 8,000 feet belt of timber. Be careful here. The eternal mists and dripping mosses have rotted the very earth you walk on. Step from root to root. Feel how the green-coated earth pulses like a drum beneath your weight. You can sink to your height in rotting vegetation here. Stop for a moment. The silence of death is in this forest. The trees themselves are dead, rotted with the moss which drapes twigs, branches, and trunks with the dripping green beard. It is a fantastic picture from a Grimm's fairy tale. It was impossible to measure distance or time on the track. You didn't want to know. You just had to keep going. Everything you had turned to mush. Your clothes rotted on your body. You woke up in the middle of a monsoon or a humid fog thick as smoke. 
There was a condition the Australians called laughing legs, where you would get to the top of the mountain and your legs would start shaking like leaves. Men literally did collapse and have to be carried back. A couple of them died. Some of them just gave up when they spent their last ounce of energy on hands and knees in the mud and the rain, pulling themselves up the slope onto what they thought was a summit, just to see a little ant line of khaki-clad comrades ascending a much bigger mountain in front of them. The Kokoda track reminds me of that phrase from Samuel Beckett, I can't go on, I'll go on. Guys, this was the battlefield. This was where the campaign would be fought. Every single ounce of supply, every reinforcement, every gun and weapon and man would pass the Kokoda track. B Company finally reached Kokoda itself a few weeks before the Japanese landed. They were met by the Papuan Infantry Battalion, the PIB, a unit of about 300 Papuan natives led by a handful of Australian officers and sergeants. Together they were task-organized as the Marubra Force, the unit designated to hold Kokoda's critical airstrip at all costs. Reinforcements would take eight more days to go up the same terrible Kokoda track. There weren't enough transports to bring in lots of troops yet. So for now, this was it. The 129 men of Captain Sam Templeton's B Company and the Papuans facing the Japanese, thundering down the road with their bicycles. The first shots of the Kokoda track campaign were fired at around 4 p.m. on July 23, 1942 when the Australians and Papuans ambushed the Japanese scouts. The Japanese immediately spread out to flank the small detachment, blazing away with rifles and machine guns and mortars. Most of the PIB fled into the jungle, going bush, as the Australians said. The Australians withdrew through the town of Wairopi, named for the wire rope bridge that spanned the nearby river. They cut the bridge and fell back to the south, but Japanese engineers were soon hard at work rebuilding that bridge so the South Sea's detachment could continue its advance. The next day, July 24th, Lieutenant Colonel William Owen of the 39th Battalion arrived to take direct command. And it was clear to him immediately, the militia were no match for the experienced combat veterans of the Nankai Shitai. The Australians were in khaki uniforms that stood out against the jungle, they were barely trained and poorly supplied, inexperienced in jungle fighting. The Japanese were dressed in green uniforms and covered their faces in camo paint. They were trained in jungle warfare and flowed like water around the Australian positions, outflanking and surrounding any unit too small to stand in their way. Their way. They were better armed, better supplied, better trained. They were just better soldiers. But this goes against the Kokoda legend. According to the legend, the Japanese only won these early battles because they had superior numbers. The Australians were better fighters. The militia were imbued with heroic power because they were defending Australia. But the truth was that both sides had about equal numbers. The Australians were only fighting the advance guard of the Nankai Shitai, a mixed task force around 230 men strong. The Australians had around 200 men themselves. The legend of Kokoda has the Australians always outnumbered, as much as 10 to 1 sometimes. But this is not supported by Japanese sources, not by the evidence. The Australians and the Japanese had roughly equal numbers throughout the Kokoda track campaign. Granted, both sides exaggerate each other's numbers, that's pretty normal in warfare. But of the Australians and the Japanese, only one of these countries needed to turn this campaign into a legend to prove to the world they believed in their country could defend themselves, would fight to the death for their homeland. The Australian version of the story needed their boys to be outnumbered. 
as Australian popular history exaggerates. They outnumbered us 4 to 1, 6 to 1, 10 to 1, because we were defending Australia. We were defending our home. This was our epic. The Japanese continued to strike the Australian forces. On July 25th, they overwhelmed Captain Sam Templeton's B Company near the town of Oivy. Templeton led his forces in their doomed stand, but he knew that they were running out of time. So he offered to go get reinforcements. He offered to run back to Kokoda to bring up help. Templeton vanished into the jungle. Then his men heard a few shots ring out behind them. Sam Templeton was never seen again. One Japanese account said that he was captured and then executed after refusing to give up his company's dispositions. But his body was never found, despite Japanese veterans helping the Australians after the war try to locate it. But this would become a rule. No Australian captured on the Kokoda track would survive. The Japanese would execute any prisoners that fell into their hands. B Company fell back, and Colonel Owen arranged what he had, his small force around Kokoda, to await the Japanese attack. They came on July 29th, 1942, with mortar fire screaming over the canopy and crashing into the Australian lines. The defenders were also shelled by light artillery, a single mountain gun the Japanese had disassembled and hand-carried up the road from Buna. But the Australians had no artillery whatsoever. The, the Japanese would eventually have 14 guns on the Kokoda track, a major advantage over the Australians with their zero. At 2.30 in the morning, the Japanese attacked. They loved to fight at night. They trained for it, unlike the Allied forces. In the darkness and the torrents of rain, pouring rain, neither side could see that much at all. Even in the daytime, the jungle almost blocked out the sun, casting flickering shadows on the green forest floor. And at night, it was even worse. It was inky black, an inky black that was trying to kill you. For more than an hour, the Australians resisted, firing their Bren light machine guns, tossing grenades, racking their rifles, and shooting at any movement in the trees. Lieutenant Colonel Owen walked the line, encouraging and cheering his men. He was in the act of throwing a grenade at the Japanese, who were yards away, when he was shot in the head. The wound didn't kill him immediately, but it was fatal. The Japanese surged into the Australian lines, engaging in hand-to-hand -hand fighting at the point of the bayonet. Finally, the Australians had no choice. They fell back down the Kokoda track towards the village of Daniki. The Japanese had captured Kokoda in its critical airstrip. But the first battle of Kokoda was only the beginning. Over the next week, both sides received reinforcements. The Japanese sent the 1-144th Infantry Battalion under Colonel Hatsuo Tsukamoto, a cruel officer, apparently an alcoholic, who was hated by his men. The speed of the march from Buna to Kokoda nearly decimated the Japanese soldiers who had to make it. This is what one of them said. When we landed at Girua, it was late afternoon. We all carried 30 kilogram backpacks and started walking at night. It was rainy and the path was very muddy and we could hardly move forward. Some of the newly recruited soldiers started saying, I cannot walk anymore. Kill me right here, please. We had to beat them up and force them to walk. Even though we wanted to help them carry their bag, we all had heavy bags and couldn't help. We walked and walked all night. But when the morning came, we realized that we had only walked 16 kilometers from the beach. As the Japanese brought up more troops, the Australians assembled the rest of the 39th Battalion around Kokoda. The 
other companies had ascended the Kokoda track, struggling and suffering and brutalizing their bodies, just like their comrades from Company B. The new commander was Major Alan Cameron, Colonel Owens' replacement. He decided to launch a counterattack and recapture Kokoda from the Japanese. Both sides were at about battalion strength, roughly the same strength, and out of sheer coincidence, both planned to attack each other on the same day. The Second Battle of Kokoda, August 8th through 10th, 1942, was a confused mess. Squads and platoons staggered around through the jungle, exhausted, colliding with screams and shots and charges and retreats. At one point, A Company of the 39th Battalion launched a wide flanking maneuver and walked right into Kokoda with barely a shot being fired. This surprised Colonel Tsukamoto, who had to call off his own attack to deal with this unexpected threat to his rear. Like I said, everybody's just wandering around. It's really confusing. But A Company could not hold the airstrip. They fended off one Japanese counterattack after another in torrential, just drenching rain. The Japanese smeared themselves in mud to run through the darkness and slide through the high undergrowth. A Company eventually ran low on food and ammunition and had to cut their way out back to the main Australian force at Daniki. During this fight, the Japanese ran into a new Australian weapon, the Thompson submachine gun, a 45 caliber automatic weapon fired from a 50 round drum. It had been made famous by American mobsters and bank robbers, giving it the nickname of the gangster's gun, but in the close quarters of the New Guinea jungle, it was a godsend. But the Australians had failed to retake Kokoda, and Major Cameron couldn't hold his forward base at Daniki either. Colonel Tsukamoto's men followed up on A Company's retreat, platoons of Japanese infantry slicing through the jungle and around the Australian flanks. They hacked at the Australian perimeter around Daniki as mortar fire rained down, as that single 70mm mountain gun lobbed shells into the jungle canopy. The 39th Battalion was on the verge of being surrounded. On August 14th, Major Cameron ordered a retreat. They had to abandon enormous amounts of food and supplies. Supplies the Japanese were all too happy to appropriate. Their own logistics were having trouble keeping up with the advance. But from Daniki, the Kokoda track climbed into the Owen Stanleys, and now the campaign was really getting started. The 39th Battalion, the Australian militia, the chocolate soldiers who were supposed to melt away at the first heat, had fought better than anyone expected. But they were outmatched. The Japanese were just better soldiers. The Australians were like a very good varsity football team, a bunch of plucky little hometown heroes playing against the New England Patriots. And right now, they were still all that stood between the Japanese and Port Moresby. All that stood in their minds between the Japanese and Australia. As far as they were concerned, they were fighting to save their home, their mothers making bread in the kitchen, their fathers driving the tractors in Queensland, their girlfriend writing letters they would never receive, their brothers and sisters who would hopefully never see anything like this. The diggers of the Australian militia were all that stood between them and what the Japanese would do if they ever got to Australia. And based on Japanese behavior in the Pacific, there were no illusions about what they would do. The soldiers of Kokoda believed that they were Australia's last line of defense. And even if we know the Japanese didn't intend to do that, that's not what the militia believed. They believed they were fighting to save Australia. It was August 1942. The Australians retreated up the Kokoda track, and the Japanese followed.
General Douglas MacArthur, in his headquarters at Brisbane, worried about the Japanese advance down the Kokoda track. His staff had considered the terrain unsuitable for military operations, but it turned out the Japanese begged to differ. Every mile they advanced was another mile closer to Port Moresby, an air and naval base that would place Japan within striking distance of Australia. The problem was that Kokoda wasn't MacArthur's only problem. The Allies had another base at Milne Bay, on the far eastern tip of New Guinea. Remember the bird of paradise, the head is to the west, the tail is to the east. This is the base on the tail. They had built an airfield and supply dump there, and it looked like the Japanese were moving to attack it to make an end run around New Guinea. Milne Bay was only defended by a brigade of Australian militia. Both Kokoda and Milne Bay needed reinforcements, but sending any troops would weaken the defense of Australia itself. MacArthur and Australian General Thomas Blamey decided to risk it. They were going to send the AIF, the regulars of the 7th Australian Division. The 18th Brigade would go to Milne Bay, the 21st Brigade would go up the Kokoda Track, and the Australian forces on the track would fall under the 7th's commander, Major General Arthur Allen. The men of the 21st Brigade were confident, hey, we're going to go rescue the militia. Just a short walk up the Kokoda Track. Looks easy on the map. How hard could it be? Both sides were discovering the extreme difficulty of logistics in New Guinea. The Japanese had secured Kokoda Airstrip, but they never did end up using it, mainly because Allied aircraft from Port Moresby retained air superiority throughout the campaign, and also there just weren't enough Japanese aircraft to supply over that long distance. The Allied bombers could not conduct ground attacks in New Guinea. The jungle canopy prevented the pilots from really seeing anything. But they kept the Japanese from even trying to use the Kokoda airstrip. But the Australians had lost the Kokoda airstrip, so that meant all of both sides' supplies were being transported up the Kokoda track. And for both sides, their main logistics capabilities would be provided by the natives of New Guinea. There's excellent film reel footage of these guys, the Papuan natives, dressed in what looked like loincloths carrying supplies on their shoulders and backs up and down the track. The Australians paid them. The Japanese usually forced them by the point of the bayonet. Guess which side's workers were better motivated? But these New Guinea porters also carried the wounded back down the Kokoda track, down those mountains through that jungle and rain, and they earned the admiration and respect of the Australians in the process. Many a wounded Australian remembered thinking he was going to die, only for a pair of natives to carry him on a stretcher all the way back down the track. This was the Papuan's war as well. The Allies did try to drop supplies to their men by air, but landing supplies by parachute was super difficult when all you saw was just a bunch of green. Hey, where the heck do I drop these things? Something like 80% of Allied airdrops never made it to their intended targets. They were lost to the jungle, or even worse, to the Japanese. As both sides struggled with logistics, they pushed more men up the Kokoda track. The bulk of the South Seas detachment arrived in New Guinea to continue the drive on Port Moresby. This included General Horii, finally taking command in person, still riding that white horse. And somehow, General Horii would get that white horse up and over the Kokoda track throughout the entire campaign. I have no idea how he did that. By the middle of August, the Japanese actually on the track numbered around 3,000 men. The South Seas Detachment, the Nankai Shatai, would reach a height of 15,000 over the course of the Kokoda campaign, but only a few thousand could be managed and projected down the track itself. That was all they could supply. Iron Hand of Logistics strikes again. 
The Australian 39th Battalion had fallen back to make their stand at the village of Isurava. These militia, old men and young boys, the unfit and the barely fit, had been fighting in the jungle for six weeks. One of their officers remembered. Physically, the pathetically young warriors of the 39th were in poor shape. Worn out by strenuous fighting and exhausting movement, and weakened by lack of food and sleep and shelter, many of them had literally come to a standstill. But help was coming. First, the 53rd Battalion, another militia unit, came staggering into Isarava after the hellish eight days of the Kokoda track. And Brigadier General Arnold Potts of the 7th Division, an AIF veteran, arrived to take command. He told them that reinforcements were on the way. Behind him, the 214 Infantry was on their way up the track, one of the AIF's veteran battalions that John Curtin had demanded Churchill return to defend the homeland. The, AI, the Australia's army is here. Help is on the way, just hold on. The Australians dug in at Isarava, waiting for the storm. The Battle of Isarava is one of the cornerstones of the Kokoda legend. It has been called the Australian Thermopylae. There's gotta be, everybody's gotta have a Thermopylae. The story goes, we held them for four days, five days, six days, outnumbered three to one, four to one, ten to one. Unfortunately for the Kokoda legend, both sides had around 2,300 men engaged in the Battle of Isurava. The Australians actually slightly outnumbered their opponents. But the Japanese used superior tactics to concentrate overwhelming force at certain points. So it might have seemed to the Australians like they were outnumbered, but overall, scale of forces was about the same. Isurava was a small village in a relatively open area, with sheer terrain to its west and Eora Creek to the east. But, you know, the Japanese, no terrain is impassable. General Horii planned a three-pronged attack, a double envelopment to hit the Australian perimeter from three sides at once. While the 1-144th and the 3-144th hit the Australians in front and on the left, the 2-144th would loop around to the east and try to cut the Kokoda track behind them. General Horii's infantry came crashing out of the jungle on August 26th and the exhausted 39th Battalion prepared to receive them. By now, the men were hungry, filthy, suffering from diseases like malaria and cholera, beaten down by the heat and worn to the bone by exertion. But they were still standing. One Australian mentioned the surreal nature of the fighting, how here they were grimy men struggling to stay alive, as the biggest, most beautiful butterflies you've ever seen fluttered around gorgeous flowers right next to your elbow. The Japanese hammered at the Australian perimeter, sending mortar shells screaming into the grass and firing rifles and machine guns. The Australian militia hunkered in their foxholes they dug with their bayonets and their helmets, returning fire at the darting figures in the jungle. They could barely see anything. Later research on this campaign would show that for many soldiers on both sides, they literally never saw an enemy soldier. They just saw muzzle flashes and shadows. The 39th Battalion was hit again and again and then on the afternoon of the 26th, the cavalry arrived. The 214th Infantry, the AIF veterans, came up the track exhausted, footsore, depleted from climbing the Golden Stair, looking incredulously at these near-skeletal figures of the 39th, just like, just, just these beaten, battered people who look like they've been through hell. The 214th relieved their militia brethren, the so-called chocolate soldiers who had stood off the elite Japanese infantry for the last six weeks. The 39th finally passed into reserve. 
The Battle of Isarava lasted for six days total, as the Japanese struggled to find a way through the Australian lines. It was jungle warfare at its fiercest and deadliest. Australian platoons were surrounded and had to cut their way out. Japanese squads threaded through the front line and had to be hunted down. Comrades were lost in the darkness, never to be seen again. The Japanese used unnerving tactics, like pretending to be dead then jumping up and attacking, or shouting the few bits of English they knew before opening fire with machine guns. One Japanese officer, Toshia Akizawa, remembered leading his men in the Battle of Isurava. I remember that all my junior officers, my NCOs, and most of my men lost their lives. All we could do was leave the place we were in and attack up the hill, and we were being told from behind, attack, attack. So there was no courage. Just without thinking, we attacked and attacked and attacked. Another officer, Lieutenant Noda, wrote in his diary, The Australians are gradually being outflanked, but their resistance is very strong and our casualties are great. The outcome of the battle is very difficult to foresee. What turned the tide at Isarava was firepower. By August 29th, the Japanese had brought up their artillery. They only had six light mountain guns, but the Australians had none. The light Japanese weapons could be disassembled and carried up the track by hand, unlike the heavier Allied pieces. So when the Japanese artillery, small caliber but still artillery, began to plaster the defenders of Isarava, the diggers had no response. The Japanese pushed in from all corners, at one point, they broke the right flank of the 214 Infantry, threatening to surround it and cut off the battalion command post. The Australians organized a desperate counterattack to restore the line. One of the soldiers in that attack was Private Bruce Kingsbury of Melbourne, 24 years old. Kingsbury scooped up a Bren light machine gun from a fallen comrade and fired it from the hip, leading a one-man charge down the slope. His comrades followed him, watching as he plowed forward like a man possessed, mowing down the Japanese. But just as they fell back down the hill, a sniper shot struck and killed him on the spot. Kingsbury's attack had almost single-handedly saved the 214th Battalion headquarters. For this action, he would receive a posthumous Victoria Cross. Bruce Kingsbury would become part of the Kokoda legend. But not every Australian soldier was Bruce Kingsbury and the weight of fire and superior Japanese fighting skill began to tell. When the Japanese flanking force shattered the 53rd Militia Battalion, the 53rd broke. The 53rd was not the best unit that the Australians had. They threatened the Australian line of retreat down the Kokoda track. Brigadier General Potts realized his men could no longer hold Isarava. After several more days of terrible fighting, hand-to-hand, -hand, guns flashing in the darkness and rain, the Australians fell back and the Japanese followed. The Battle of Isarava was lost, partially due to the skill of the Japanese and partially due to the deficiencies of Australian tactics, though no one could deny either side's courage. Placing the 53rd where uh, General Potts did at that critical place when it was one of the shakiest units he had was just a bad idea. The Australians would hold up this battle as a gallant last stand, part of the Kokoda legend, but in reality, they had just been out fault. Both sides had been brave, the Japanese were just better at this. The Australians conducted a fighting retreat through the miserable rain-lashed hell of the Kokoda track. They fought numerous rearguard actions, battles at places like Eora, Templeton's Crossing, and Iori Baiwa, 
each of these battles another chapter in the Kokoda legend. One of the fiercest battles happened at a place the Australians called Brigade Hill, where the entire 21st Brigade had finally arrived to resist the Japanese, but they still had no artillery, and General Horii's men just juked around and outflanked them again. The Japanese just kept coming. General MacArthur and General Blamey were both screaming at the Australian generals on the ground. They were upset at General Allen, commander of the 7th Division, and General Potts of the 21st Brigade. Like, why can't you stop the Japanese? Our intelligence says they're outnumbered and low on supplies. Which was true. And part of the Kokoda legend is that MacArthur and Blamey were desk generals, headquarters flunkies who didn't understand the situation on the ground, didn't know what it was really like down there. And this part of the Kokoda legend is partially true. Douglas MacArthur is a very controversial historical figure who I have lots of complicated thoughts on, but he's really only a side character in this story, so I don't have time to get into that much. MacArthur had major character deficiencies. He was arrogant, proud, and lordly, a supreme egotist and shameless self-promoter. But MacArthur was also an outstanding general with a keen eye for the iron hand of logistics and a shrewd judge of fighting ability. He described the Australian forces as fighting tenaciously and gallantly under conditions of extraordinary hardship and difficulty. But in a private communication to Army Chief of Staff George Marshall, he said, The Australians have proven themselves unable to match the enemy in jungle fighting. Aggressive leadership is lacking. I mean, both these things were pretty much true. The Australians were brave, steadfast, fighting like lunatics, but the Japanese were better at jungle warfare and small unit tactics. However, there was definitely a feeling amongst MacArthur's staff, even if not MacArthur himself, debatable, that Australian soldiers just wouldn't fight. This was 100% unfair and did not reflect the situation on the ground. Lots of MacArthur's staff never really grasped the difficulty of the fighting on the Kokoda track. Lots of people back at headquarters didn't get how tough it was out here. But MacArthur and Blamey had another point. Potts had mishandled parts of the Battle of Isarava, and Allen had failed to supply his forces with enough firepower. The Kokoda legend holds up both these men as legendary heroic leaders, stabbed in the back by their bosses. But the reality is more nuanced than that. What MacArthur saw was an Australian army that was failing to stop a smaller Japanese force from advancing through horrible terrain, threatening the entire Allied war effort in the Pacific. But to be honest, the Australians were probably doing all they could. The Japanese might have had about equal numbers to the Australians, but they were better armed, better equipped, better trained, better disciplined. They were the best light infantry in the world, and the undeniable courage of the diggers wasn't enough to compensate for that. And the Kokoda track remained brutal. Thousands of Australian soldiers ascended the track, climbing the Golden Stairs, nearly freezing at the peaks of the Owen Stanleys and drenched with sweat in the swamps, wearing themselves out on the way to the battle. The New Guinea natives carrying their supplies staggered, exhausted, sometimes falling to their deaths down the steep cliffs. One Australian officer remembered. Gradually, men dropped out, utterly exhausted. Just couldn't go on. You'd come to a group of men and say, Come on, we must go on. But it was physically impossible to move. Many were lying down and had been sick. Some ate, others lay and were sick, and others just lay. Some tried to eat and couldn't. Besides all the other stuff, 
Another major problem was disease. There was malaria, dysentery, cholera, typhus, fever, all the fun things that always come with the jungle war. Even the plants could be dangerous, leaves that would slice open your leg or your arm, causing open festering wounds. Men staggered down the track, nearly collapsing, streams of crap flowing down their legs from the diarrhea, their clothes just hanging off their bodies like spider webs. They were lashed by torrents of monsoon rain, flooded until nothing they had was dry. The Australians retreated down the track, and the Japanese followed. But the Japanese were not having a good time either. They might have been better trained, but they weren't superhuman. The Japanese were astonished by the sheer agony of ascending the Kokoda track, pursuing the Australians up and down the muddy slopes, existing on handfuls of rice and mouthfuls of muddy water. They were suffering. You can tell because the Japanese had a name for the Kokoda track. They called it the Path of Infinite Sorrow. Holy crap. Like, you know, the Japanese have this reputation in the Pacific War for, you know, enduring anything, just being the toughest people. But even they're like, this sucks. This is awful. Why did we do this? Path of Infinite Sorrow, though. That's a metal band name right there. Infinite Sorrow. I'm, I'm going to get tickets to that. But as bad as the Australians had it, the Japanese might have had it worse because they were starting to feel the pinch of the iron hand of logistics. The longer their supply line grew, the more the factors of distance, conditions, and capacity throttled their supply abilities. General Horii noted that supplying his 3,500 men that he had down the track required three tons of food and supplies per day, which required 4,600 carriers. But the farther they got down the track, the farther those carriers had to march and the less reached the Japanese. General Horii's men were soon surviving on whatever they could capture from the enemy. Like, that was all the food they were getting. But the Japanese were thunderstruck by the level of material that Allied logistics could project, even up the Kokoda track. One Japanese war correspondent remembered how he felt when he saw one Allied supply dump at Iyoribaiwa. Here in the Papuan Mountains, the standard of living was higher than in Japan. I thought I saw something of the appalling power of Anglo-American civilization that Japan had so recklessly challenged. Just add that to the list of incidents where Axis troops in World War II are astonished and appalled at how good Allied logistics are. But that wasn't enough to stop the Japanese. The Australians conducted a fighting retreat down the Kokoda track, moving from position to position trying to make a stand. By September 10, 1942, they had reached the high ground of Iori-Baiwa Ridge, only 25 miles from Port Moresby, within sight of the ocean. They fought hard, but once again, General Horii's men slipped through and penetrated their defenses. The Australians made yet one more withdrawal, to a position called Imita Ridge. Imita was the last stand, the last major terrain feature between Japan and Port Moresby. General Arthur Allen of the 7th Division ordered Brigadier General Kenneth Ether, who had replaced Potts, Potts had been fired, to hold this position to the last. There won't be any withdrawal from the Imita position, Ken. You'll die there if necessary. But they wouldn't have to. The Japanese had hit their logistics limit. The men were starving, exhausted, nearly dead on their feet. General Horii and his South Seas detachment had virtually reached the end of their rope. But they were so close. Port Moresby was right there. 
the Japanese war correspondent remembered. We gazed over the Gulf of Papua from the peak of the last main ridge we had fought to ascend. I can see the ocean, the sea of Port Moresby. Later that evening, we stood on the peak and saw the lights of Port Moresby. We could just make out the searchlights shining over the airfield to the north of the city. So close, but they would never get there. For two major reasons. First, the Allies. The Australians had failed to stop the Japanese on the Kokoda track, but they had slowed them down. They had bought time. Time for more reinforcements to arrive, including the 25th Brigade, to reinforce the 21st and the militia. Time to position artillery to bombard any attempt to storm Imita Ridge. Time to start preparing the American 32nd Infantry Division to come to Port Moresby. The Allies were just pouring troops into Port Moresby. They were getting stronger by the day. But General Hori'i was determined. He believed he could still take the town. They had come so far. Just one more push. On September 20th, 1942, he declared that the final assault was imminent. But it never came. Reason number two, the Japanese failed to attack Port Moresby. They had bigger issues. As the Kokoda Track campaign had unfolded, two major military events had taken place elsewhere in the Southwest Pacific. First, the Japanese had assaulted the Allied base at Milne Bay on the eastern tip of New Guinea. Around 2,000 troops of the Special Naval Landing Forces, or SNLF, the Japanese Marines, launched an amphibious assault to secure this critical outpost that could maybe enable them to outflank the Kokoda Track. They ran head-on into almost 9,000 Australian troops, regulars, and militia, along with some American anti-aircraft units, and the Japanese got stomped. The Battle of Milne Bay, mostly forgotten in histories of the Pacific War, was Japan's first clear-cut land defeat in World War II, and it was inflicted by the Australian Army. But the bigger Japanese issues were unfolding at the very outer limit of their empire. Just before the Battle of Isaraba on August 7, 1942, the 1st Marine Division landed on Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands chain and captured the Japanese airfield there. The Japanese immediately committed Army, Navy, and Air units to destroy the Marines and recapture Guadalcanal. The result was a six-month seesaw battle, one of the decisive battles of World War II, one of the most famous, that forced the Japanese strategists to make some hard choices. They did not have the resources to fight full-fledged both Guadalcanal and Kokoda. You gotta choose. They had to prioritize. And they chose Guadalcanal. On September 24th, General Hori'i received the order to withdraw from his exposed position and try to find a defensible, suppliable line along the Kokoda track. Hori'i was furious, proclaiming, I can defeat the Australians now if I... Look, they're so close, I can see Port Moresby. But in reality, the Australians were going stronger every day, reinforced up to almost two brigades, and finally they had artillery and heavy weapons. The Japanese were exhausted, starving, running out of ammunition and medical supplies at the end of their logistic tether. You can only go so far with guessing the outcome of a battle, but I am pretty darn certain that if Hori'i had attacked Imita Ridge, he, it would have been like a, just like a, a toddler running into a brick wall. The South Sea's detachment would have been slaughtered. There's no way. The Japanese soldiers had come so far, had sacrificed so much, had won so many small encounters and battles on the Kokoda track, and in the end, it was all for nothing. They had to turn their backs on the lights of Port Moresby, on any possibility of victory, and go back up the Golden Stair. 
back into the jungle. And the diggers came after them, suddenly realizing that Australia was saved, the Japanese were beaten, and the tide had turned. The Japanese retreated up the Kokoda track, and the Australians followed. Kokoda honestly deserves to stand besides those other great campaigns of 1942, Stalingrad, El Alamein, Guadalcanal, as one of the turning points of World War II. For two months, the Japanese had pursued the Australians down the Kokoda track. They reached their high water mark. But on September 26, 1942, the Japanese started their retreat, and now the Australians were the pursuers. Things were going in reverse. The trouble was that the Australians weren't pursuing as quickly as General MacArthur and General Blamey wanted. They criticized General Allen, commander of the 7th Division, for not staying on the enemy's butts up the Kokoda track. He had fresh men, more supplies, and the Japanese were exhausted. What was taking so long? Allen's reasoning was that he didn't want to run into the same logistical nightmare that had stopped the Japanese. He didn't want to outrun his supply line. But his caution allowed the enemy to break contact and retreat up most of the Kokoda track unmolested. General Horii fell back methodically, taking his time to evacuate the wounded and all his equipment. The Australians followed cautiously, fighting small clashes with Horii's rearguard at several points along the track. The only really large engagement happened at Eora Village and Templeton's Crossing, where the two 144th Battalions stood off the Australians for almost three weeks, October 11th through 28th. Three weeks? One battalion? That was the last straw for MacArthur and Blamey. They fired General Allen and replaced him with Major General George Vasey, nicknamed Bloody George. Allen has gone down as part of the Kokoda legend, a man who was fired for doing the right thing, for not advancing past his logistics, the scapegoat for the jealous higher-ups. But I can see both sides. In my opinion, though, Bloody George Vasey ended up being the better commander. On November 2nd, 1942, the 231st Australian Battalion marched into the deserted town of Kokoda. The Japanese had kept retreating to the north and east, leaving the town behind. The victory was not entirely symbolic, because now the Kokoda airstrip was back in Australian hands. Supplies could be received by air, loosening up the iron hand of logistics and allowing Vasey's men to push north with more material than the Japanese ever had on the Kokoda track. It was time to deal the final blow. And the diggers were ready to mete out some vengeance. At one point on the track, they had found the bodies of two murdered Australian POWs. The Japanese had beheaded one of them with a sword and tied the other to a tree and used him as bayonet practice. Again, this was normal. No Australian who fell into Japanese hands during the Kokoda campaign ever made it to a POW camp. The Australians weren't the only angry ones. One of the Papuan mountain tribes, the Orokaibas, came running out of the jungle to greet the Australians as liberators. When the Japanese had come to their village, they took all their food, shot and mutilated some of their men, and raped or abducted their women. So as the Australians chased the Japanese, 
they would receive ample assistance from the very angry Papuan natives. On November 4th, the Australians advanced north from Kokoda to confront the Nankai Shitai. General Hori'i had set up his troops on the high ground near the villages of Oivi and Garari, with 15 artillery pieces and 30 heavy machine guns. They had a strong defensive position, trenches reinforced with fallen trees, snipers in the bushes, ready to chop up the Australians when they tried to attack. The Australian 7th Division was in much better shape than the skeleton militia force the Japanese had first encountered. They were better trained and had better weaponry than the World War I leftovers the militia had had to work with. Now they had plenty of mortars for indirect fire, as well as new small arms, including the handy Owen submachine gun, an Australian-designed weapon well-suited for jungle fighting. Lighter and more reliable than the Tommy gun, it gained the nickname Digger's Darling. But the Australians had really advanced in their command and tactics. Before this, when the Australians attacked, they usually used unimaginative frontal attacks, costly in lives and ammunition. But it turned out, contrary to the Kokoda legend, that relieving Allen and replacing him with Vasey might have been a good choice. When the Australians hit Hari's defensive line at Uivigarari, the 16th Brigade was stopped cold at first. Heavy artillery fire, machine guns, and snipers kept its three infantry battalions from making any headway. Vasey decided to send his other brigade, his entire reserve, on a wide flanking maneuver to the south to sever the Japanese line of retreat near Garari. His troops got lost at first, but by November 8th they came out of the jungle, and this time it was the Japanese who were surprised. The Australians attacked boldly, rapidly, with more vigor than the entire campaign so far. They smelled blood. They were on the attack. General Hori'i tried to organize a counterattack, but the exhausted Japanese were losing heart. By the end of the day, the Australians had control of the crossroads, cutting the South Sea's detachment in two. The Japanese had to retreat or be destroyed. As it turned out, both. Both was good. The 144th Japanese Regiment would later blame the 41st for failing to put up an effective rear guard, an accusation that divided and caused arguments between Kokoda veterans decades later. Whatever happened, the Japanese routed, trying to escape across the Russian Kamusi River with the Australians in hot pursuit. In the process, they lost all their artillery and supplies and many of their heavy weapons. Hundreds of Japanese were killed. Only around two-thirds of the Nankai Shitai's personnel managed to escape back to their original landing beaches at Buna and Gona, and General Hori'i was not among them. It was a while before the general was found, floating face down in the river, alongside his white horse. The Japanese survivors of Kokoda staggered north to the sea. Japanese war correspondent Saizo Okada remembered. Their uniforms were soiled with blood and mud and sweat and torn to pieces, there were infantrymen without rifles, men walking on bare feet, men wearing blankets of straw rice bags instead of uniforms, men reduced to skin and bones plodding along with the help of a stick, men gasping and crawling on the ground, some of them lying there for a while and struggling to their feet again, while others stirred no more. The Battle of Oivigarari was the final clash of the Kokoda Track campaign. It destroyed the South Sea's detachment as an effective fighting force, and nixed any chance of the Japanese capturing Port Moresby. It was also a capstone triumph for the Australians, who had finally gained the advantage in tactical skill and jungle warfare, especially logistics, over their Japanese opponents. Four months of amazing courage, tenacious fighting, 
astonishing willpower, and the ability to overcome a very steep learning curve had led to Australian victory in the Kokoda Campaign, their epic of World War II. But the fighting in Papua was not over. The Japanese were still determined to hang on to their original landing sites at the villages of Buna and Gona, and they had been digging in for weeks. To beef up the bloodied remnants of the Nankai Shatai, the Japanese High Command sent reinforcements to Buna and Gona by sea. They were preparing for their last stand, and the Allies were girding themselves to capture the two villages. But the Australians would not be fighting this one alone. General Douglas MacArthur seemed to believe that good old American boys were just what was needed to get the Australians moving. He decided to commit the 32nd Infantry Division, a U.S. Army National Guard division from Michigan and Wisconsin, commanded by Major General Edwin F. Harding. General Vasey's 7th Australian Division would attack Gona, while the 32nd would attack Buna. Allied reconnaissance flights and scouts seemed to indicate that the villages were lightly held. This would just be a mopping up mission. Say it with me, famous last words. Because the combat on the Kokoda track had been fierce jungle fighting, but the battles of Buna Gona would combine the worst of that with something like a leavening of World War I. The Japanese had dug in deep, 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 building bunkers and trenches with interlocking fields of fire, so camouflaged and concealed in the jungle, they couldn't be seen from the air and could barely be seen on the ground. Each bunker was reinforced with several layers of logs to prevent bombs or artillery shells from penetrating it, and the Japanese had packed the jungles with mines, booby traps, snipers, and machine gun nests. The Allies were about to learn a major rule of thumb that would last throughout the Pacific War. When the Japanese dug in, it would take heaven and earth to get them out. That and grenades, flamethrowers, all the usual stuff. The battles of Buna and Gona began in a torrential downpour on November 19, 1942. The Wisconsin soldiers of the 128th Infantry Regiment ran straight into a gauntlet of fire, which ripped up the jungle around them, coming from nowhere and everywhere. The Midwesterners reeled back in shocked disarray. As it turned out, the 32nd Division was completely unprepared for this battle. It was untrained in jungle warfare, it was launching frontal attacks with minimal fire preparation, and lots of its heavy equipment had been lost when the ships sank off the coast of New Guinea. Their artillery hadn't arrived, or their tanks. But General Harding was under pressure from MacArthur's headquarters, which, as usual, didn't understand the situation on the ground. They ordered him to attack again, so he did. The Americans continued to batter their head into a brick wall at Buna, failing to adapt to the situation. They were hurled back by hidden bunkers and ambushes, got bogged down in the swamps and the mud, and worst of all, ended up taking friendly fire from their own aircraft. Lieutenant Robert O'Dell, a platoon leader in the Michigan National Guard's 126th Infantry Regiment, remembered one attack on Buna. All hell broke loose. Machine gun tracers lit the entire area, and our own rifle fire made a solid sheet of flame. Everywhere men cursed, shouted, or screamed. Order followed on order. Brave men led and others followed. Cowards crouched in the grass, frightened out of their skins. Over at Gona to the west, the Australian 7th Division did better, but only slightly better. They were certainly less of a mess than the Americans. MacArthur was furious at the 32nd's slow progress, especially when Australians began to insinuate that Americans didn't know how to fight. Huh, it doesn't feel so good, does it? This, yeah, fighting the Japanese sucks. We were trying to tell you. 
This wounded Douglas MacArthur's pride, which to be fair was wounded by basically anything take your pick. Faced with a stalemate at Boonagona, he decided to call in a fixer. MacArthur summoned U.S. Army Lieutenant General Robert L. Eichelberger to his headquarters at Port Moresby and gave him the kind of drama queen speech that only MacArthur could give. Bob, I'm putting you in command at Boona. Relieve Harding. I am sending you in, Bob, and I want you to relieve all officers who won't fight. Relieve regimental and battalion commanders. If necessary, put sergeants in charge of battalions and corporals in charge of companies. Anyone who will fight. Time is of the essence. MacArthur pointed a finger at Eichelberger. Bob, I want you to take Boona, or not come back alive. Yeah, MacArthur had big theater kid energy. Take a fine arts grad student, put forced SARS on his shoulders, and that was MacArthur. Eichelberger took charge of the Boonagona front, and like I said, MacArthur had major character issues, but he knew how to pick fighting generals. Eichelberger is one of those unsung American commanders of World War II that I love so much, a talented organizer and trainer who got things moving. He had the 32nd take a long pause from attacking as he untangled the command structure, brought up the artillery, brought in a company of light M3 Stewart tanks, but he also fixed more fundamental issues. The 32nd had been suffering from malaria and dysentery, poor food, bad water, not enough tents or clothing. General Harding had boloed his division's logistics. But Eichelberger got all this fixed as well, and soon the 32nd was hammering Buna with everything it had and the Australians had finally cracked the defenses of Gona. The 7th Division had been chipping away at the Japanese defenses for weeks, to no avail. They needed reinforcements. So the Australians called in the 39th Battalion, the Militia, the Chocolate Soldiers, the same men who had stood off the first Japanese assault on Kokoda so many months ago. The 39th launched a decisive attack on December 8th, 1942, one year to the day after Australia entered the Pacific War. Using all the lessons they had learned on the Kokoda track, they infiltrated close to the Japanese lines, using the jungle for cover. When the artillery bombardment began, they started moving forward before the shelling even stopped. So when the stunned Japanese looked up, the veterans of Kokoda were on top of them, shooting, throwing grenades, stabbing. The 39th cracked the Gona position. The rest of the Australians joined in, by the next morning it was over. Gona had fallen. This was one decisive breakthrough in the Boonagona campaign. Five days later, the Americans captured Buna Village, and the Japanese were now hemmed in against the coast. It would take the rest of December and most of January, slow, agonizing process, to dig the Japanese out one by one. One Japanese medic wrote in his diary, which was found on his corpse. Enemy shelling and bombing every day. It is about time that we received some divine aid. Starvation is a terrible thing. It seems all the grass and roots have already been eaten. The Japanese finally gave up and began to evacuate their troops. Of the around 12,000 Japanese that fought at Buna and Gona, only 5,000 managed to escape, including the final survivors of the South Seas Detachment. When the battle was finally over on January 22, 1943, a grinding two-month contest of attrition, 7,000 Japanese soldiers were dead. Bunagona was a bitter, astonishingly bloody battle, where almost one in every ten Allied soldiers lost their lives. The U.S. 32nd Division lost 787 dead, 
while the Australians lost 1,204. Add to those losses the 625 killed on the Kokoda Track and the 167 at Milne Bay, and around 2,000 Australians had died in the struggle for Papua, the fight they believed was to save Australia. And few units had suffered worse than the 39th Battalion, the militia who were never supposed to be frontline fighters. Out of an authorized strength of around 500 men, they only had 32 left standing at the end of the Battle of Boonagona. General Eichelberger, probably the best American combat general in the Pacific, was still shaken by Buna years later by his hollow victory. Buna was bought at a substantial price in death, wounds, disease, despair, and human suffering. No one who fought there, however hard he tries, will ever forget it. I am a reasonably unimaginative man, but Buna is still to me, in retrospect, a nightmare. This long after, I can still remember every day and most of the nights. The war in Papua New Guinea was over, but the war in New Guinea overall and the Pacific would go on. Japanese troops would still be in the New Guinea highlands well into 1945, in that vast island where time seemed to vanish. It's one of those islands where Japanese soldiers would come out of the jungle decades later not knowing the war was over. But the war in New Guinea from now on, and the war in the Pacific from now on, would be a mostly American war. As more and more American troops arrived, the Australian divisions carried less of the load. But Australians would still be in combat up to the end of the war. In 1945, the 7th Division, the veterans of Kokoda and Gona, would launch the final amphibious assault of the Pacific War against Borneo in modern-day Indonesia. They were still fighting there when the Japanese surrendered and the Pacific War came to a close. The official count is that 27,073 Australians lost their lives in the Second World War. Australia had carried its weight in the greatest of all wars, even if its part is largely forgotten by most outsiders today. But the Australians remember. Because even as the Australians have been pursuing the Japanese to victory on the Kokoda Track, a different kind of victory had been won back in the homeland. Way back in 1931, the British government had passed the Statute of Westminster, granting independence to its dominions, but the Australian government of the time had refused to ratify it. But in mid-1942, when World War II was raging, when Australia realized they had to stand on their own, Prime Minister John Curtin reintroduced the Statute of Westminster Adoption Act to the Australian Parliament. It passed and was approved by royal assent on October 9, 1942, even as the diggers chased the Japanese back down the Kokoda Track. The act was backdated to September 3, 1939, the day that Australia had entered World War II, but it's no stretch to say that Australia became truly independent in those dark days of 1942, when they learned that not only would they have to stand on their own, they could stand on their own. If they hadn't proved it before, they had proved it on the Kokoda track. This is why the Kokoda legend has become so intertwined with Australian identity and patriotism. It didn't hurt that it got put on film. Australian war correspondent Damien Para had been with the diggers during the last half of the campaign. His video footage was edited for a newsreel documentary called Kokoda Frontline, released in 1942, which you can easily find on YouTube. It's like 10 minutes long, quick watch. Go look it up, Kokoda Frontline. The documentary won an Academy Award and brought the campaign to the attention of the public, especially the Australians at home, who realized what their boys were going through. 
Damien Parra himself, would be killed in 1944, filming the U.S. Marines at the Battle of Peleliu, leaving behind a pregnant wife. But his footage had helped make Kokoda into the legend, the epic, the battle that saved Australia. Kokoda became the symbolic expression of Australian heroism and valor. It is literally their equivalent to D-Day, Stalingrad, or Dunkirk, their epic of World War II. And like all the epics, it grew in the telling, grew into a legend of courage and sacrifice, of being outnumbered ten to one, of a mortal threat to the homeland, of a clueless high command and neglectful allies, of an inhuman enemy and an unready militia that gave all it could give. The 39th Battalion's leftovers, the Chocolate Soldiers, were transformed into the central heroes of the story, proof that the Australian everyman could defeat the elite Japanese warrior. But Kokoda was still just a word, a name, for many people in Australia, just another battle in a list of battles. Until the 1980s, when the legend really took off. Since then, Kokoda has become an Australian cultural touchstone, with books and stories and songs and documentaries and memorials and movies. There is the Kokoda Track Memorial Walkway in Sydney. Australia's largest cross-country fitness challenge today is the Kokoda Challenge, a 96-kilometer cross-country course, the length of the Kokoda Track, 96 kilometers or 60 miles. It contains challenges including vertical climbs meant to represent the Golden Stairs, and it has to be done within 39 hours for the 39th Battalion. And finally, especially since the 80s, there's a growing trend of young Australians making the actual Kokoda Trek, up the track that still crosses the Owen Stanleys in New Guinea today. The number of walkers each year number in the thousands, and this is not an easy trek. People die on this hike, usually from dehydration. To some, it has become a rite of passage, a test of adulthood, for young Australians in their early 20s to climb the Kokoda Track. They're trying to prove themselves against the challenge their grandparents and great-grandparents overcame, just as tough 80 years later as it was in 1942. And now, oh, there are adventure races too, an annual Kokoda Challenge race up the track between people who train for it. <laughs> Though I cannot find out if this race is still going on, the Facebook is dead. Let me know in the comments <laughs> if, if it's still going on, because I can't, I can't figure it out. Uh, in 2012, the 70th anniversary of the campaign, for the first time, Two Japanese runners came to compete with the Australians and the Papuans to see who could make the Kokoda run the fastest. I guess that's, that's a pretty excellent way of burying the hatchet. But Papuan Ramzi Idao won the 2012 Kokoda Challenge race. But the Japanese returned to Kokoda for other reasons. During the battle at Brigade Hill on the track, Kokichi Nishimura's platoon all swore to each other that whichever one of them survived would come back to bring the rest home. Nishimura ended up being the only survivor, and in 1979 he returned at age 68 to fulfill his promise. He spent the next 15 years moving up and down the Kokoda track, finding his old friends and sending them home. He never forgot them. And neither did one Australian veteran, who wrote in 1995, Now on Kokoda Day, when the names are read out of those killed in action. I know them all and still see them as they were. They will never become old or embittered, just laughing kids forever. The diggers who had climbed the Kokoda track had ascended into legend.
So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? So why does a story get transformed into a legend? Why do people take the bare facts of a story like the Kokoda Track campaign and distort them? So let's take a look at the Kokoda legend and see how it matches up to the reality we learn today. In the Kokoda legend, the Japanese are getting ready to invade Australia. But as we know, they had given up on this idea long before the campaign began. In the Kokoda legend, the Japanese outnumbered the Australians 4 to 1, 6 to 1, 10 to 1, when in reality the numbers were usually about equal. And at Isaraba, the alleged Australian Thermopylae, they slightly outnumbered the Japanese. In the Kokoda legend, the Australians have superior unit cohesion and are just better fighters. But the Japanese were pretty clearly man for man the better soldiers on the Kokoda track. In the Kokoda legend, the higher-ups are ignorant buttholes, but reality was more nuanced than that. In the Kokoda legend, Australian courage and willpower are universal. They were nearly superhuman. But in reality, they weren't perfect. Sometimes they broke and ran. Other times they were less aggressive or fell out due to disease or sheer exhaustion. Just like in any army, some Australians did not have what it took to fight a modern war in near-impossible terrain. There's nothing to be ashamed of. This happens to every country's army in every war. These are some elements of any pop history of the Kokoda campaign. Lots of the documentaries and YouTube videos, several books I read. The Hollywood version, I guess you could say. And we know the difference now between the legend and the reality. But the bigger question is, why did this legend emerge? In lots of countries around the world, especially in the 1980s and 1990s, World War II myths emerged that shaped the way people saw the conflict and saw themselves. In America, the late 1990s to early 2000s were basically the World War II pop history golden age, when most of the movies and miniseries and video games and history books helped set the narrative of the greatest generation. We built our legends around D-Day and the Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan and Call of Duty and Medal of Honor and Flags of Our Fathers and various other stories, and our legends shape what Americans think of World War II and themselves today. Is it really a surprise that other countries did something similar? But Australia's relationship to Kokoda is somehow even more potent and more singular. The entire mood of 1942, the sense of menace coming from all those rapid Japanese victories, the last-ditch efforts of the Australian militia on the Kokoda track, the whole aura of peril in those pivotal days of World War II, they came at the same time that Australia was trying to find its place in the world, trying to set itself apart from its mother country and chart its own destiny as an independent nation. Australia literally became fully independent from Britain in the middle of the Kokoda campaign. If you need an, an analogy, what music do you personally always listen to and remember? You remember and listen to the music you listened to when you were young, when you were in your late in teens or your late 20s, trying to discover yourself and find your place in the world. The objective qualities in the music mattered less than how it makes you feel, what it makes you remember. In the same way, Australia needed a legend. A legend outside of British or imperial history. A legend they could claim they won, them, their own. A fight to defend their homeland. And they found Kokoda. And history becomes the same thing for all of us. I keep saying this, how we remember our history is at least as important as the history itself. For a military event like the Kokoda Track, it came in a time and a place that made it matter. 
Humans tell themselves stories, both fictional and non-fictional, that try to express some truth, that explain something about who we are, what matters to us, what values we share, and what evils we reject. And history is the story, the original story, greatest story of all. So of course we tweak it, we shift things around, we make it just a bit more of an epic than it was. Like I said a couple of weeks ago about Malala of My Wand, another epic. If it didn't happen, it should have. I'm not trashing the Kokoda legend. Like I said, America has its own cherished legends, some of which still occasionally need a bit of myth-busting, just to keep our, you know, keep our egos a little bit smaller than they are. But I'm also not trashing it because the reality hardly needs to be embellished. I think of all those boys, kids, just Great Depression they're just they're they'd starved and been so poor for so long. Scrawny, shy teenagers strapping on that kit and rifle to climb the Kokoda track. Barely trained boys who went into a green hell to face a better trained, better equipped veteran opponent, one that didn't have to outnumber them to outmatch them. Everyone on the Kokoda track, Australian and Japanese and Papuan, endured one of the most extreme experiences in modern military history especially those who didn't come back at all. Even when they couldn't go on, they went on. Maybe history does sometimes become a legend. But you know what? Sometimes people need a legend. Sometimes they need a story to tell them who they are, what they believe, what they fight for. So even if the legend of Kokoda isn't true, well, I think the truth is legendary enough. Thanks for listening today. I hope you learned a lot about a campaign of World War II that you may have known nothing about. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. If you don't like what you've heard, tell your enemies. And I might suggest again, this is a great starter episode for people who might want to start listening to this podcast in a familiar war, in a familiarish context. So if you want to read a bunch more articles on the Pacific War just to get more context on this story, they are on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary. Lay it on me. Thanks once again for listening, guys. Remember that we are on a semi-weekly schedule this season, so I will see you in two weeks for a trip to a place maybe even worse than New Guinea, Oklahoma. Just kidding, guys. Check back here on Unknown Soldiers.